Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the implications of the near-death experience. My guest, Peter Todd, is the author of The Individuation of God. He is a Jungian psychotherapist practicing in Australia. Uh, you'll see the designation MAPS after his name, which stands for Member of the Australian Psychological Society. In addition, he was a gold medalist at the very first Gay Games or Gay Olympics in San Francisco in 1982 for bodybuilding. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you all the way between Albuquerque and Sydney. It's a privilege and an honor to be appearing on such a prestigious program as yours for expanding the noosphere and resacralizing the world. Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, we'll be talking about your near-death experience and, and the implications of it. And uh, earlier today, I, I discovered that you were a bodybuilder, basically, early in your life. So I have to assume that you had a very strong focus at that time, at least, on, on the physical aspects of being human. Well, certainly upon my own embodiment, and hence my later ready acceptance of dual aspect monism, which doesn't deny the material world or the incarnation. I'm I'm aware of that, and I just it occurred to me that probably yeah, your preference for dual aspect monism as opposed to monistic idealism, metaphysical idealism, uh, yes, based on at least in part on your appreciation of uh, the possibilities inherent in physical reality. Yes, as. Raised as a Catholic, though more, now more mystical and uh, adhering to dogmatic theology, I was very aware of the significance of the incarnational doctrine in theology, but now in a process theology, like that of Théard de Chardin. But uh, my physicality, just quickly, uh, at that time I had developed physicality, my body to the extent that I did, because I had... Uh, transformed the outrage from receiving aversion therapy for being gay in the 1960s into activism. And so I decided to take part in the first Gay Olympic Games, during which I won the gold medal for physique, and then impromptu gave a human rights address to a packed Castro theatre in San Francisco, receiving a standing ovation. Well, that's quite a history. And it's at some point, you, as you mentioned, you got very much involved in the ideas of Teilhard de Chardin and, and Carl Jung before you ever had a near-death experience. Yes. As a matter of fact, I was so disillusioned with what I was hearing in radical behaviorism at university that I started to read the collected works of Carl Jung at the age of 22 and dipped into Teilhard de Chardin's published works as well in my 20s. And you worked uh, with people dying of AIDS. Uh, for many years in San Francisco when I was there after the Gay Games and also uh, in Sydney during those terrible years when 
The diagnosis of HIV seropositive status was a terminal diagnosis because the average life expectancy was about three years to mortality, so I sat at many deathbeds, hour after hour, being on call late at night for the dying, and interestingly, at the moment of death, I often saw a light or radiance or spiritual light leaving the room, and none of my patients ever died except in a state of peace, joy, and connection to something luminous. Uh, you know, Raymond Moody has uh, written a book in which he he talks about people who are in the room with others dying, that they mm. often have something akin to a near-death experience, as, yes. as if they're accompanying the, the loved one. Uh, so you, you experience that before your own actual near-death experience. Yes. Yes, I did. And I suspect, without going into too much detail, I was something of a mystic as a small child anyway. I think I've always been an intru- in, introverted, intuitive type and a bit mystical in inclination. Well, what may I ask, what, what led you to pursue uh, an interest in bodybuilding? The opportunity came to participate in the first gay Olympic Games. I met Tom Waddell's roving ambassador and he invited me to become captain of an Australian team to participate in the Games in September of 1982. And I had already been competing in bodybuilding and powerlifting as well at national standard. And so I decided to utilize that to participate in one of the Gay Games events. It wasn't a a narcissistic preoccupation with my physicality, but more a use of that as a symbol of a hero and role model that other very muted and frightened people who happen to be uh, homosexual might identify with and be inspired by. Your mystical inclinations, which you indicated went back to your childhood, didn't prevent you from taking a deep interest in bodybuilding. Not at all. I saw no antithesis at all. And I believe it was 2005, many years after uh, your gold medal as a, as a bodybuilder, uh, that you had a, an actual near-death experience. Absolutely. And I'm glad you say actual death experience rather than near-death experience, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, one is actually clinically dead in the sense of having uh, cardiac arrest and a flat EEG. And uh, just briefly, I had uh, high loadings of aspirin and capitigal when I was sent for an emergency bypass after an aborted attempt at stenting the coronary arteries in the morning. So I developed a blood clot, 1,600 mils pleura amediastinum, which meant that I was taken back into the operating theatre where I had a cardiac arrest and died on the operating table, during which I believe I had the near-death experience. And uh, you described that experience, I, I know, in your book very eloquently. Um, could you talk about about it now? Yes, do you mind if I just refer to some notes, sir, because I've actually... Sure, go ahead. If I, uh, go ahead. tell you the exact mm-hmm. experience. My finite ego consciousness for connected to a rapturously beautiful light, a loving presence, and a source of wisdom which seemed cosmic, infinite, luminous, timeless, and eternal, not spatio-temporally bound, and without any apparent beginning or end. The light seemed to be brighter far, than the external sun, boundless and all-enveloping. I experienced what seemed to be augmented wisdom in fields of knowledge beyond what I had formerly studied, and a sense of luminous becoming 
<coughs> in which I was also participating. I experienced the presence of departed visionaries, including Tao De Chantin and Carl Jung, who were among the many who had inspired my previous work, especially with people dying of HIV-AIDS. I was filled with a profound sense of tasks yet to be fulfilled and contributions to be made to science and humanity which might further the work of those who had come before me, especially in-depth psychology, psychoanalysis and religion, and an inward vision of participating in a Copernican revolution in science and mystical theology which would replace archaic doctrines and an interventionist God external to the cosmos. The luminous experience was of a cosmic and radiantly beautiful presence, though not anthropomorphic in form. The experience was formless, except for the rapturously beautiful and enveloping sense of presence, which I sensed was also magnificently conscious and communicating with me. That's very profound, and uh, undoubtedly it was life-changing for you. In fact, as I recall, you... Within a few weeks of having had this experience, you wrote down your your thoughts in a, a lengthy manuscript, and it turned out to be the basis of eventually your book, The Individuation of God. Of the book and of subsequent publications and a number of interviews, including now this one with you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that experience that took place some 15 years ago was, I, I have to imagine, it was something of not more than a milestone, maybe a turning point in your life. Well, I was more than well into the autumn of life, a time popular with the Jungians, at least in his collective works. <clears throat> and yes, it was a turning point. I mean, I was left with, I left hospital weighing 60 kilos and totally wasted and emaciated and fragile for a long time. But yet, when I sat at the desk with sacred music typing this manuscript, I felt inspired and a sense of energy which would not have been considered possible considering my, considering my fragile bodily state. So it certainly took possession of me, Carl Jung would suggest, a complex or an archetype. If that was the case, it would be, I'd have to think... Uh what we might call a Godhead archetype. I mean, you were surrounded by a a, a light that was, as, as you describe it, more powerful than the sun and an extending uh, with no boundary. Hildegard of Bingen described her experience of the inner light being brighter than the sun as regenerating her. She said, even though 80 years of old, when I experience this light, I feel rejuvenated and like a young girl again. It's also reminiscent to me of uh, the description in the Bhagavad Gita when uh, Krishna reveals his divine nature to Arjuna. I believe the phrase is brighter than 10,000 suns. Absolutely. That's, that sums it up beautifully. So you had this experience and here you are on the operating table. <laughs> the physicians assumed that you were dead. Well, I, I, I was. I was because I woke up to discover, in fact, my partner discovered that I had uh, quite a lot of bruising from defibrillator shocks, so there were several attempts to resuscitate me. I was obviously clinically dead for them to have done that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was told that I died on the operating table. At the time, you were, uh, I presume you were practicing psychotherapy. You still practice psychotherapy. Yes, but with uh, deeper insight greatly enhanced empathy and compassion, and I think an even augmented 
intuitive sensitivity to the people I'm working with and to the unconscious, even to the collective unconscious and the archetypes about which some of your guests have spoken on this series. As for the God archetype, as you know, one of your guests recently made the comment about Jung that he wrote about the deeper numinous self archetype, which he said, I could not distinguish empirically from an unconscious imago dei or God image. And Roderick Main, of course, writes of a transcendent God archetype in itself, which ends in mystery and can't, can't be described adequately by any one of a number of primordial images. I gather, Peter, that what you're saying is you had a direct experience of this archetype and that near-death experience, and it was so powerful that for you, it's not just a psychological archetype. The Godhead archetype actually reaches to God. Uh, God as an ontological Timeless, eternal reality with no beginning and no end. That was your experience. And, and I know that even before you had that experience, you were deeply involved in, in the studies of Carl Jung's psychology yes. and, and the magnificent theories of Teilhard de Chardin, yes. his, his theories about evolution and the role of uh, human beings in the cosmos and so on. So I suppose it's fair to say if anybody was prepared for a near-death experience, certainly you were. I was, and I see it in retrospect as a donum gratia, as a gift of grace. And I'm under the impression that the insights that uh, were generated in that experience uh, have motivated you subsequently to to be a spokesperson for what we'd have to call a new theology, a theology for the third millennium. Absolutely. That, as you know, is the title of the last chapter of my book, The Individuation of God. Yes, well, I'm one of a number of spokespeople for an emerging evolutionary panentheistic process theology of which Teilhard de Chardin is an exemplary example, a Jesuit paleontologist for Roman Catholics, and Paul Tillich for Protestants. And there are a number of other thinkers who are contributing to the emergence of this new evolutionary panentheistic theology, including Roderick Main, of course, the Jungian from Essex. And uh, though we might be a small group, I'm well aware that historically great ideas generally started with a small group of people and become disseminated. However, now we can complete Tao's noosphere, moving towards an omega point or divine focus of mind for the world because of the existence of the internet and the communication being possible at the speed of light. Yes, like we're experiencing right now. I'm, I'm really amazed that I can have a conversation like this with somebody who is, I, th I think you're probably at least 12,000 miles away from me. Yes, and 75 years old, but not feeling that at all. My mind, if anything, is augmented and capable of far more than I was as a young man. We have the other example of Eben Alexander, who had a near-death experience. His brain was virtually destroyed, his cortex, and, and yet uh, he, he made an amazing recovery and is functioning at a very high intellectual level today. I have an enormous amount of respect for Eben. He was a brilliant man and a professor and admittedly admits having been formerly a materialist and probably an atheist, but of course he's now no longer an atheist and he's disseminating his wonderful thought. And though I might disagree with him 
about the details of ontological idealism, preferring a dual aspect monism, there is much that I share in common with him and a lot of empathy for his experience and for his now mystical status. I, what I'd like to kind of get at, because you're obviously a, a, a deep thinker and deeply involved, not only intellectually with these ideas, but very personally, having sat at the deathbeds of I, I don't know how many uh, AIDS victims, I'm going to guess over a hundred. Uh, far more than that, David. Numberless. I was the only psychologist in Sydney, quite frankly, who was prepared to sit at the deathbeds. The clergy stayed away, much to my horror. I said in one interview, where were these so-called icons of Christ who wouldn't enter the rooms and sit at the deathbeds of these dying patients? I actually performed that function, spiritual accompaniment, if you like, through death, instead of the clergy. Well, classically, the near-death experience begins with what people describe as moving through a tunnel. Uh, did you have that experience? No, frankly, David, I didn't. Uh, if I did, I haven't recalled it. But most of the other features, including the... I had experienced something of a life review, although I haven't written much about that, because that's instantaneous and just merely, merely revealed to me that my life had a purpose that the review revealed more of. And the rest of it is, the phenomenology is very similar to that of most people who've written about their NDEs, the mystical and transcendental elements and the light, for example, and the presence. But I think what's unique in your case, Peter, is that you have uh, the intellect to begin to try and make sense of an experience that many people would say is ineffable, hard to describe, maybe impossible to describe, really. But you have applied theology, philosophy, psychology, uh, to to develop a um, an intellectual model uh, that would enable most people who haven't had the experience to really uh, have a grasp of uh, not only what it was like but what its significance is. Yes. Well, may I quote refer to Roderick Main again? He wrote a wonderful paper called "The uh, Panentheism: The Undoing of Disenchantment." And the disenchantment, of course, is with traditional theisms, with their external interventionist God, a cosmic sadist in many ways, and not at all related to cosmology or evolution, whereas uh, the kind of numinous principle that Jung and Tao are writing about, and Roderick Main as well, is one of process God co-evolving with humanity, as well as being incarnate. So there's a notion with Master Eckhart even of a continuing incarnational process, which Jung himself refers to, of course, in his answer to Job essay. So God continues to evolve and co-evolves with us, and we're involved in a process that I refer to as co-creative divinization of the world. It's very different than a theology that uh, suggests that God is already perfect in every way. Well, I think that's the God that Richard Dawkins killed off, maybe to our benefit, well, perhaps not intentionally so. Richard Dawkins, uh, who wrote 
The God Delusion, I believe, is the book you're probably referring to, uh, which was very popular uh, some time ago, uh, claimed that uh, people who believe in God are uh, basically uh, fulfilling some sort of a uh, subconscious fantasy that they want to live forever. They don't want to die. Well, he's borrowed that idea from Sigmund Freud, the author of Moses and Monotheism and the Future of an Illusion, where the illusion, of course, is religion. What Richard doesn't tell us, however, is that he's dispensing with the notion of God that was already dead uh, with the quantum revolution in physics and then the collaboration between Jung and uh, Wolfgang Pauli on the relationship between mind and matter and complementarity uh, and leading to a panentheistic mystical theology. I think I'd like to mention here too, whilst it occurs to me, that one of the founders of quantum physics, Niels Bohr, once made the remark that the problem with some ideas is not that they're crazy, but that they're not crazy enough. I'm under the impression, given your extensive background, that many of these same ideas were already yeah, in a nascent form in in your mind, and that what happened is the, the near-death experience, or as probably better said, the actual death experience that you had, vivified those thoughts for you, uh, really made them alive. It brought them to life and it brought me to life as well with a sense of a need to, uh, again, you see, following Tar and his uh, work on evolving a noosphere, moving towards divine focus of mind, a need to see what's happening in the world and the menace to the planet posed by thermonuclear weapons and climate change, to embark upon a process with others of resacralizing the world, which may help to mitigate the destructiveness of the human shadow, particularly in its collective aspects, as if we haven't had enough lessons from Nazi Germany and Joseph Stalin and Chairman Mao already. Well, we've certainly, yeah, especially in the 20th century, had to confront uh, human shadows, darkness, perhaps even evil rising on every side. And uh, we're not done with it yet. Uh, we're, we're still experiencing many of these traumas. Let me jump around a little bit because uh, you've mentioned the importance of Tehard in, in your life. And actually, I think it's worth mentioning he had something of an indirect influence on me as well because uh, one of my mentors and, and big inspirations is the psychologist Gene Houston, who grew up in, in Manhattan. And as a child, uh, playing in Central Park in New York, she, she met him. She met this and took daily walks with a man she knew as Mr. Thayer. And he, he was, I think, in, in their conversations, though she was a 12 year old girl at the time, began to, um, stimulate her to become uh, the great spiritual teacher and writer that she now is. Yes. So you were aware of that connection already. Yes, I was. And I think Teilhard was one of those remarkable Jesuit paleontologist theologians who had integrated his anima function in Jung's sense and in the very deep sense of a numinous God archetype, though he wouldn't have used that language to describe it. And you're right about my India, some of those intimations of the divine and uh, mystical experience were with me prior to the NDE, but in a sense the NDE made them seem far more profoundly real and embodied 
and needing to be, as it were, I needed to be a kind of voice for them, almost a prophetic voice, if I can use that term, uh, in a world that is suffering from the uh, dangers implicit in climate change and thermonuclear weapons. When I describe the near-death experience as a turning point in your life, that might be the time in which you evolved from being uh, a psychotherapist primarily to a a person who on a mission, on a mm-hmm. mission to uh, develop a new theology that uh, would serve all of humanity for the next millennium. Ah, uh, exactly, one that would serve one that would serve all of humanity globally and hasten the uh, expansion of Taos noosphere of meaning and consciousness of things sacred in the world. Well, you know, the life of Teilhard de Chardin, I think, expresses, right, in his own career, the obstacles that you're up against. He was silenced by the Catholic Church. Yes, just part of Vatican II. Brilliant man, uh, do you think it was the fact that it happened prior to Vatican II that it wouldn't have happened after? The Roman Catholic Church had an anaphylactic response to any talk of evolution or integrating evolution with Christianity and theology prior to Vatican II, and he had been sent into exile by his own Jesuit order, ironically and synchronistically even, to China, where he was involved in unearthing the remains of Peking man. What a wonderful coincidence that was. But one of the um, obstacles uh, is sort of traditional religion. Surely Mm. when you talk about a new theology for the next millennium, you're going to have a lot of people saying, we don't need a new theology, we need people to pay attention to the old theology. Mm -hmm. Well, that's particularly true in Australia, which is probably the last bastion of the most conservative form of Roman Catholicism in the world. I didn't know that. I do. My background is Irish Orthodox and Catholic. So, in a sense, you fought various battles in your life. You had to struggle against uh, gay conversion therapy. You struggled for gay rights. You've been uh, an AIDS activist. You And now I have to call you a theological activist. Yes. Well, I think that came to me, that transformation came to me particularly as a result of the NDE and the augmentation of my uh, experience of the mystical see, I'd like to comment that this experience, though I had had intimations of it prior to the ND, actually occurred during a period when I was in actual clinical death. So it's very important to bear that in mind. I was not embodied until resuscitated later. So I had this experience, this epiphany, if you like, into the numinous during a period of actual clinical death, not on return to my body. That, that's one of the cr- criticisms that skeptics of the near-death experience raise, that oh, the so-called uh, experience is generated by the brain once uh, a person uh, returns to normal consciousness. Yes, well, I like many answers to that, including that of Pim Van Nommel and my own, because I worked in the neurosciences for seven years, which is that after resuscitation from cardiac arrest, the most common experience is one of disorientation, confusion, delirium, certainly not heightened awareness or mystical transcendent experiences. It's one of confusion and delirium. 
it would seem as if your experience would be consistent with people who who suggest that the brain acts as as a filter to filter and essentially the awesomeness of uh the this archetypal energy that you experienced uh for, uh, away so that most normal people living their daily routines aren't disturbed by this sort of thing i absolutely agree that it does act as a filter or trans transducer if you like and i'd even say for given my Jungian background the conveying to the world of the message of the archetypes as Jung and Pauli put it about the future of humanity and the necessary the necessity of uh, acquiring a more mystical and reverential attitude towards all beings and the interconnectedness of all beings when you talk about Jung and Pauli, Pauli being the Nobel laureate physicist who worked carefully with Carl Jung back in, I think, the 1940s. 1932 to 1958. You're focusing in on probably one of the most significant intellectual dialogues in, uh, certainly in the 20th century, if not beyond the idea that depth psychology and uh, quantum physics could uh, engage in a, a mutual exploration of uh, what I'd have to call metaphysical reality. Yes. Well, we might come to this in the second interview, but just to anticipate that, uh, Jung and Pauli developed the notion of extending complementarity beyond physics, like in the way of particle duality, to the relationship between mind and matter, science and religion, where according to complementarity... Uh, the two aspects of the reality uh, are mutually exclusive and exhaustive and yet together necessary to explain a phenomenon exhaustively and yet remain totally irreducible to one another, which, when one thinks about it, eliminates reductionism of either a materialist or idealist kind. This idea also centers on something known as unus mundus, the one world, the... Uh, essentially the ground of all reality. Yes. Well, I was going to comment on the Unus Mundus in the second part of the interview, but just, just in answer to your question, uh, for Jung and Pauli, that was the holistic ontological foundation of what would later become mind and matter in an epistemic sense. And this Unus Mundus is approached from the mental aspect via Jung's collective unconscious and the material by quantum non-locality. An analogous uh, idea is that of the implicate order of David Bohm, Basil Harley and Pavel Pulkanen and their colleagues, but we can talk about that more later if you wish. Let me uh, try and keep the focus on your near-death experience. I, I, I'm kind of at a loss. Uh, in, in a way, uh, it was an experience. It came and, and it went, but uh, you're still living it, in, in a sense. I have the impression that it never left you. Not only has it never left me, it informs a lot of what I do, and I sometimes re-experience it in dreams or in meditative states. I meditate regularly to sacred music, mm -hmm. Gregorian chant, and I immediately reconnect with that mystical NDE and sometimes things that I didn't experience during the NDE, but certainly a connection with the numinous God archetype, as you referred to earlier. 
Were you meditating prior to the experience? I had read Jung's essay, Transformation Symbolism in the Mass, so that when I attended the Mass, I had a rather different view of it than someone sitting in the pews seeing some external drama unfolding in the sanctuary. It seemed to have an inner correspondence to me. And this is prior to your near-death experience? Yes. So if anybody was ever ripe for that experience, it, it seems to me that it was you. And I have to say, Peter, it also seems to me that you're taking the experience probably further than other people who have had such experiences. I don't know any other uh, theologian, and I have to call you a theologian at this mm-hmm. point, who who has actually... Um, had that experience. Well, maybe they have had it, but uh, they didn't become a theologian because of it. Uh, That's quite correct. And yes, my theological ideas, resulting partly from the ND, have found their way not only into my book, but I was invited on the basis of having read that book by Professor John Grimm at the Divinity School at Yale University to publish a paper in Tayar Studies, the Journal of the American Tayar Association. So, in a sense, I'm contributing to the evolution of theological thought through sources such as that as well. Well, that just makes the work you're doing all the more uh, complex and richer. When you had that experience, uh, were you surprised? Or was it something, given the many deathbeds that you have sat at, that didn't surprise you. It felt more like something you already understood. It felt strangely familiar mm-hmm. when I was resuscitated and woke up. And on wakening, I actually expressed to a friend, having probably just emerged from the NDE and been resuscitated, I made the comment, God is so beautiful. I was simply consumed with this wonderful feeling of love, both being loved by the divine connection with the divine and loving principle in the universe, and also uh, love for the world myself and an intention to use the rest of my life to make sure that people came to an awareness of the importance of uh, Teilhard's milieu de vin, divine milieu, the need to resacralize the world having become disenchanted with the old theisms. You know, I don't recall Jung ever commenting on Teilhard or Teilhard ever commenting on Jung, but these are the two big influences, I think, in your life, and they seem very compatible. And there are several authorities whose names I can't refer to at the moment who have actually suggested that there may have been some converging thought between Jung and Teilhardashanta, whether or not they ever corresponded, I don't think we shall ever know, but there are certainly similarities. The way Teilhard describes the his god omega point is so similar to the way Jung described the luminous self archetype and the unconscious and transcendent imago dei. And also the, the concept of the newest sphere seems uh, akin to the notion of the collective unconscious. Oh, absolutely. I think that parallel is very clear. As you emerge from the near-death experience, uh, I keep calling it near-death out of habit, but I, I know you prefer to think of it as actual death, and, and for good reason. Uh, but as you emerged, uh, as you came back from the realm of uh, 
I don't even want to call it the realm of the deceased because it seems like more alive than this realm. Well, in a way it is. And hence, I think the idea reported by many in the years, including people like Pin Van Lommel and authorities like, authorities like Peter Fenwick, with whom I did a Skype interview last year, that NDEs have lost practically all fear of death. Well, of course. If this mm-hmm. is what it's like to have died and to become part of a magnificent, numinous reality, there is nothing to fear. There is no extinction. I'm under the impression, though, that you, you can lose the fear of death uh, without necessarily having an NDE. You could, uh, uh, I think in your case, after sitting at so many deathbeds, you probably lost your fear of death then. I lost a lot of it, but I think the NDE really consummated it for me. It's almost an experience I look forward to at the end of my life, whenever that is. The Unio Mystica. When you found yourself back on, in the hospital, uh, was, were you disappointed? Was it difficult to return? After the initial experience of the God is so beautiful, what I shared with my friend, I felt a little disappointed that I had to become re-embodied because my body was a mess. I had terrible complications following the surgery that I won't go into at the moment, but I was returning to a body that was emaciated and very disfigured mm. compared to the physique you saw in the photograph in 1982. Well, Peter, uh, this is a fascinating conversation. You're able to describe your experience with a lot of precision uh, and I think our viewers will be very interested in getting into the details of uh, your understanding of a theology for the next millennium. Thank you for being with me. It's been my pleasure, Jeffrey. 